0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Becoming Lincoln. Episode 18, War at Pleasure. John Harden wanted a fight. After Abraham Lincoln frustrated his efforts to return to Congress in 1846, Hardin asked for, and received, a commission as colonel of the 1st Illinois Regiment. That July, he led 877 men from Alton south toward General Zachary Taylor's army in northern Mexico. But instead of rushing into the front lines, Hardin spent months in San Antonio, Settling petty squabbles among his young men while awaiting orders. When they finally moved out in early October, they suffered for a lack of provisions, at one point, marching 24 miles through a desert without seeing any water. By December, Hardin was tired, bored, and homesick. He lashed out at the people in the country he was invading. He called Mexicans, a miserable race with a few intelligent men who lorded over the rest of the three-quarters of the people. He visited a cathedral in Sotillo, the capital of the Mexican state of Coahuila, but complained that it was full of what he called contemptible wax figurines. Hardin obsessed over getting into combat. He wrote to an officer that he wanted to see, a skirmish, a fight, and a battle. And then, I will be ready to go home, and attend to other business than arms. He had missed the Battle of Palo Alto, an indecisive fight which ended with a fire in the chaparral that burned wounded men to death. He missed the Battle of Monterey, where Americans cut off during a retreat died of thirst, and others were chewed on by wolves in their final moments on earth. Hardin likely heard of how Arkansas cavalrymen herded a group of Mexican civilians in a cave, where they killed nearly two dozen men in front of their wives and children, who also had to watch as the Americans scalped their husbands and fathers. An American witness wrote, The cave was full of volunteers, yelling like fiends, while on the floor lay over 20 Mexicans, dead and dying in pools of blood, while women and children were clinging to the knees of the murderers and shrieking for mercy. In February 1847, the violence finally caught up with Hardin. Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, the effective dictator of Mexico, had force-marched an army north to confront Taylor's forces on February 22nd. Hardin, expecting a battle that day, immediately addressed his men, saying, I will see no man to go where I will not lead. This is Washington's birthday, Let us celebrate it as becomes true soldiers who love the memory of the father of their country. The words were wasted. The regiment saw no action that day. But on the cold and drizzly morning of the 23rd, Santa Ana's numerically superior but poorly equipped force outflanked Taylor, forcing the Americans to pull back. U.S. artillery barely prevented Santa Ana from making a breakthrough. Hardin helped stabilize the lines, yelling, somewhat obscurely, Give them blizzard, boys! A thunderstorm brought the combat to a halt in the early afternoon. After the rainfall, Santa Ana tried a second attack, but Taylor's forces held. On encountering wounded Mexican soldiers after the assault, advancing U.S. troops murdered them. With bowie knives. As this war crime developed, Taylor, feeling confident, ordered the Illinois regiments to join a general charge at the enemy. It was the moment Hardin spent seven months waiting for. He assembled his men and marched forward at triple step, grapeshot blasting around him, trying to seize a Mexican battery across the field. They got within a few yards of the cannons when about 1,000 Illinois volunteers ran into 10,000 Mexican soldiers mounting a counterattack. Hardin had run too far, and he was surrounded. Other U.S. units advanced to support him as Taylor ordered a retreat. As he pulled back, Hardin led his men into a ravine. Mexican soldiers quickly got on top of them and began firing. Historian Amy Greenberg, in her book A Wicked War, describes what happened next. Quote, to the retreating men, it appeared that the entire edge of the gorge was darkened by a great mass of Mexican soldiers firing down on them. At this point, and here Greenberg quotes a witness, every voice appeared to be hushed by Colonel Hardin's. We could distinctly hear him shout, remember Illinois and give them blizzard boys. And Greenberg continues, 20 Mexican Lancers charged at Hardin firing at the same time. A private in his regiment reported that Hardin fell, wounded. With his holster pistol, he fired and killed one lancer, and I think he drew or attempted to draw his sword. But in the melee, I could not be sure, for as many lancers as could approach him surrounded and threw their lances in him. At least 90 other Illinoisans died on the field with Hardin that day. One surgeon Writing a letter at two A.M. the following morning, told his family, quote, I have been in blood up to my shoulders since nine o'clock this morning. John Hardin's body was returned to Illinois the following July. He was buried in Jacksonville, his home in Morgan County. Abraham Lincoln was one of the many mourners who attended the funeral. Richard Yates, Hardin's law clerk, delivered what Greenberg describes as, quote, a very conflicted eulogy. Yates praised the valor of the soldiers, but refused to honor the war in which they lost their lives. Greenberg writes, quote, Yates asked his listeners to identify with the deep-felt sorrow of the wife, who shall never look on that loved one again, as well as the tears of the bright-eyed boys and girls whose father's form now fills a soldier's grave in a foreign land. Yates could not bring himself to speak in favor of the war, even as he extolled a man he loved who sacrificed his life in Mexico. Few conflicts in this nation's history have been deadlier, more divisive, or more terrible in their consequences than the U.S. invasion of Mexico. Of 78,000 Americans who fought in the war, over 13,000 died, a casualty rate on par with Union deaths in the Civil War. Anywhere from 25,000 to 50,000 Mexican soldiers died in the fighting, not counting civilian deaths. On the American side, seven out of every eight deaths were due to disease, thanks to borderline criminal sanitary practices among volunteer troops. Early in the war, Taylor set up camp at Carmargo on the San Juan River in the Mexican state of Nuevo Leon, south of Texas. 12,000 men used the water for every kind of bodily function. Disease swept through the camp. John Eisenhower, in his book So Far From God, writes that of the 795 Georgians who arrived at the camp, just 370 marched out. Eisenhower writes, quote, For the volunteers, the very name Camargo was synonymous with boredom, filth, and tragic death. Disease took a fearful toll and the dead march never ceased throughout the day. The large tents were constantly full. The dead were removed at sunrise and sunset. But the nearby troops could hear the groans and lamentations of the poor sufferers throughout the night. Immigrants who enlisted in the U.S. Army faced such harsh treatment from officers that many crossed the lines to fight with Mexico. Historian Daniel Walker Howe writes that 8.3% of U.S. soldiers deserted, double the rate during the Vietnam War. The superior artillery of American forces and the lack of supplies on the Mexican side prevented the invasion from becoming a complete fiasco for the Americans. Mexican troops fought bravely, but the army was badly organized, and authorities often forced men to serve. Timothy Henderson, in his book A Glorious Defeat, writes quote, There were 18 officers for every five regular soldiers, and those officers' bloated salaries were ruinous to the budget. Prisoners, vagrants, and drunkards were pressed into service. Indians were often captured, quite literally, with lassos as they tried to flee from recruiters and brought to the barracks, chained together. The war enlarged the United States. But had terrible consequences. American authorities ignored the civil rights of men and women in the newly acquired territories. In California, Howe writes, the Native American population fell from 150,000 before the war to 50,000 a decade later. The invasion unleashed additional conflicts in Mexico, most notably in the state of Yucatan, where half the population was dead or displaced by 1855. In the United States, the war became wildly unpopular in the North and bitterly divided the country, starting the slide toward the Civil War. In an often-quoted passage, Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote in his journal near the start of the war, The United States will conquer Mexico, but it will be as the man who swallows the arsenic, which brings him down in turn. Mexico will poison us. The author of this calamity was President James K. Polk. Polk is sometimes lionized as the president who kept all his promises. He was also one of the very worst people to ever occupy the White House. Humorless and self-righteous, Polk kept a diary throughout his presidency, but it was an arid production that only comes to life when Polk gripes about visitors to the White House or his Secretary of State, James Buchanan. Polk had no intimate relationship with anyone except his wife, Sarah, with whom he worked in a kind of partnership. During the presidency, the Polks bought and separated 19 enslaved teenagers to work on a Mississippi plantation that would support James and Sarah in retirement. To save money budgeted for service and upkeep in the White House, money that came out of the president's salary, Sarah fired all the paid servants and replaced them with the Polks' own slaves. Like a medieval crusader, Polk believed that God was on his side. And like a crusader, Polk felt no need to keep oaths made to the enemies of his cause. To put it another way, Polk was a liar. And he lied like a fundamentalist, cheerfully, repeatedly, and with no sense of honor to anyone he considered an infidel. As we mentioned in episode 16, Polk let protectionist Pennsylvania Democrats believe he was with them then signed a bill lowering the tariff. When members of his own party wavered over the annexation of Texas, Polk let key senators think he would negotiate the boundary and the status of slavery in Texas, then did absolutely nothing on either front. He lied to New York Democrats about patronage, which had disastrous consequences for the party in 1848. Polk lied in such brazen, self-satisfied ways that he became something of a joke. Gideon Wells, a Democrat who worked in Polk's Naval Department and later served as Lincoln's Secretary of the Navy, said of Polk, quote, His mind was narrow, and he possessed a trait of sly cunning, which he thought shrewdness, but which was really disingenuousness and duplicity. Polk started the war on the very flimsy grounds that American soldiers operating south of the Nueces River, the traditional boundary of Texas, had been attacked by Mexican forces invading American soil. Congressional Democrats then stampeded a declaration of war, leaving almost no time for debate. Once war was declared, Polk proved a terrible commander-in-chief. He deeply distrusted the Whig-dominated officer corps. And he skimped on funding to the point where many armies in the field found themselves perpetually short on supplies. Polk's opponent in the 1844 election, Henry Clay, had opposed the war. But his son, Henry Clay Jr., had felt lost after the death of his wife. So he enlisted in the army when war broke out. The younger Clay served with Taylor in northern Mexico and fought at Buena Vista, joining the desperate advance to save Hardin. When the Mexican army charged, Clay was shot in the thigh. He ordered his regiment to retreat then drew his sword. The soldiers running toward Clay quickly stabbed him to death. Two enslaved men managed to recover Clay's body. One was wounded in the effort. It was a terrible blow to the elder Clay, who had already lived a parent's worst nightmare multiple times in his life. All six of Clay's daughters were dead. Clay's oldest and youngest sons suffered from debilitating mental illness, and two other sons needed his financial support. Henry Clay Jr. had lived a comparatively steady and prosperous life, and Clay Sr. called him, quote, one of my greatest comforts. He wept openly at his son's funeral, his grief compounded by anger at the terrible injustice of the war in which his son had fallen. Clay was still grieving when he appeared before 3,000 people in Lexington, Kentucky, on November 13, 1847. It was a rainy day, which he called, quote, a gloomy day, and like it, our nation is shrouded in gloom. Clay was 70 years old and in the early stages of the tuberculosis that would kill him. But he could still move an audience. One man who heard Clay speak that day said his eyes, quote, burned like bulbs of fire. I have never heard such a speech. Abraham Lincoln, visiting his wife Mary's family on the way to Congress, may have been in the audience. The address, known later as the Market Speech, retains its power. Clay denounced a war that had been started by a, quote, palpable falsehood. He said, quote, This is no war of defense, but one unnecessary and of offensive aggression. It is Mexico that is defending her firesides, her castles, and her altars. Not we. Clay insisted that any territory acquired be gained through peaceful negotiation, and critically added that slavery should be banned in any lands so acquired. With a sense of prophecy, Clay said, quote, To us, they might prove a fatal acquisition, producing distractions, dissensions, divisions, possibly disunion. Let, therefore, the integrity of the national existence and national territory of Mexico remain undisturbed. I desire to see no part of her territory torn from her by war. In some ways, Clay was echoing existing Whig thought, cherishing their beliefs in congressional supremacy. The Whigs were outraged by Polk's unilateral actions and the attack on a smaller country in early eighteen forty seven Thomas Corwin, a Whig Senator from Ohio, said in the Senate chamber quote, "If I were a Mexican, I would tell you, have you not room in your own country to bury your dead men? If you come into mine." We will greet you with bloody hands and welcome you to hospitable graves. The Whigs fell upon a strategy dubbed No Territory. Like Clay, they opposed any effort to acquire new lands, citing their potential threat to the Union. Historian Michael Holt writes, Even in 1844, Whigs had outlined arguments against the dangers of territorial expansion. But... They regarded acquisition by military conquest as particularly intolerable. America's mission, they iterated and reiterated, was to spread Republican institutions by example, not by coercion. Democrats responded with patriotic correctness. Stephen Douglas ran up and down Illinois calling Whigs who voted against the war traitors in their hearts but the Whigs remained unshaken. They celebrated the victories of Whig generals and voted supplies for the troops, but felt no shame denouncing the war. Hardin's law partner, David Smith, rebuffed Hardin's suggestions he enlist, writing, quote, The greatest thing to us, after all, is to conquer ourselves, and then we shall be more than the most successful military chieftains. We shall be conquerors in the highest and best sense of the term. The stand paid off for the party in eighteen forty six. With the North rapidly turning on the war, the Whigs made major advances in the midterm elections and took control of the House of Representatives, where Lincoln was headed that fall. Abraham, Mary, and their sons Robert and Eddie, the latter born in 1846, arrived in Washington on December 2nd, 1847, just prior to the opening session of Congress. Washington in the late 1840s was an odd mix of the monumental and the rustic. Landmark buildings were surrounded by countryside. Vacant lots dotted streets where pigs, chickens, and cows roamed freely. The novelist Charles Dickens called Washington, quote, a city of magnificent intentions. Carl Schurz, later a U.S. senator, wrote, Imagine a broad street, level, and both sides with hotels and shops, then wide stretches of open country, and again streets interrupted by vacant lots, groups of houses scattered about in apparent disorder, with here and there a marble palace, which contains one of the government departments. This strange jumble leaves the spectator in doubt whether all this grandeur is in a state of development or already approaching decay. There was visible evidence of decay at the U.S. Capitol building, where the wooden dome was rotting. In the chamber of the House of Representatives, portraits of Washington and Lafayette looked down upon carpets stained with tobacco juice. House committees met in corners of the chamber, and the 232 representatives did most of their work at their desks, amid an endless din of noise. Historian Michael Burlingame writes, quote, the representatives' desks made the lower chamber a convenient place for them to take care of their correspondence and other business, much to the annoyance of colleagues who were addressing them. Even more annoying was the cacophony created by members clapping their hands to summon page boys for various chores, like delivering messages or fetching water, newspapers, and envelopes. In 1849, a Kentuckian reported that the house is but a continued scene of dissension and distraction, disorder, and uproar. No speech is listened to while the floor is occupied. The honorable members are skipping to and fro, laughing, talking, whispering, cursing one another, slapping their hands together, rapping on the desk for the messenger boys, all together making a bedlam that outdoes the pit of a theater or taproom. Lincoln's first duty in Congress was listening to Polk's annual message, a kind of State of the Union address read by a clerk. In it, the president tried to take the offensive against the House's slim Whig majority. Polk praised the conduct of the U.S. Army and its generals and justified the war as a response to, quote, repeated acts of bad faith by the Mexican government. He pointedly refused to withdraw American troops from the field and vowed that he would take land from mexico he wrote the doctrine of no territory is a doctrine of no indemnity and if sanctioned would be a public acknowledgement that our country was wrong and that the war declared by congress with extraordinary unanimity was unjust and should be abandoned an admission unfounded in fact and degrading to the national character Polk accused Mexico of refusing to discuss border adjustments, writing that as a result, Mexico, quote, involved the two countries in a war by invading the territory of the state of Texas, striking the first blow, and shedding the blood of our citizens on our own soil. This was a lie. The traditional border of Texas had been the Nueces River, which Taylor was south of when the war began. Whigs seized on this and readied their attack. Lincoln placed himself at the tip of the spear. He had said little about the war during his 1846 campaign or in his surviving correspondence from that year. But once engaged, Lincoln became a fierce critic. On December 22, 1847, Lincoln filed a resolution with eight questions challenging Polk's premises. Three of the questions asked about the spot of where blood had been shed, which led the package to be dubbed the Spot Resolutions. Lincoln asked if the spot was within a, quote, settlement of people who had since fled before American troops. Lincoln asked, quote, whether the people of that settlement, or a majority of them, or any of them, had ever, previous to the bloodshed mentioned in his message, submitted themselves to the government of the laws of Texas or of the United States by consent or by compulsion, either by accepting office or voting at elections or paying taxes or serving on juries, or having process served on them, or in any other way. Lincoln continued the attack in his first house speech on January 12, 1848. His shrill but clear voice probably played as well as any other person's in the loud atmosphere and poor acoustics of the chamber. One person who shared a table with Lincoln at the boarding house where the family stayed would later recall Lincoln laughing about the uproar in the House as he spoke. As Michael Burlingame notes, speeches delivered in Congress were less for the audience there than hometown newspapers, and Lincoln's argument aimed mostly at the Whigs who voted for him. The hour-long address in many ways reads like a cross between Clay's market speech and one of Lincoln's legal briefs, aimed less at inspiring an audience than laying out an argument. The speech focused on Polk's claim that Texas's boundary was the Rio Grande. The Republic of Texas claimed this border after Texan rebels captured Santa Ana after the Battle of San Jacinto in 1836 and forced him to sign a treaty declaring it such. Polk considered it binding. Lincoln called this, quote, the sheerest deception, comparing it to a person writing out a deed to claim land belonging to someone else, quote, The claim would be quite the same in substance, or rather, in utter nothingness. Much of the speech focuses on legal arguments, but Lincoln did achieve a certain eloquence when he demanded that Polk answer his questions. Quote As a nation should not, and the Almighty will not, be evaded, so let him attempt no evasion, no equivocation. If he cannot or will not do this, if on any pretense, or no pretense, he shall refuse or omit it, then I shall be fully convinced of what I more than suspect already, that he is deeply conscious of being in the wrong, that he feels the blood of this war, like the blood of Abel, is crying to heaven against him. As historians note, Lincoln was not a lone voice of dissent in the chamber, but part of a general Whig attack on Polk. As Greenberg writes, two weeks after Lincoln's speech, the chamber passed a resolution from Representative George Ashman declaring that Polk had unconstitutionally started the war. Greenberg suggests the Whig offensive, combined with war weariness, led Polk to accept a peace treaty in February that fell short of his demands for land. For his part, Lincoln always voted supplies for troops, but his anger over the war continued to burn. In May, a Baptist minister sent Lincoln a copy of a speech in which the minister claimed that the United States, quote, committed no aggression on Mexico. Lincoln replied that the army, quote, marched into a peaceful Mexican settlement and frightened the inhabitants away from their homes and their growing crops. He added, quote, perhaps you considered these acts too small for notice. Would you venture to so consider them had they been committed by any nation on earth, against the humblest of our people? I know you would not. Then I ask, is the precept whatsoever ye would, that men should do to you, do ye even so to them? Obsolete? Of no force? Of no application? There are many myths about Lincoln's stand against the war with Mexico. Standard histories of the war, at least from the American side, tend to end the narrative with the fall of Mexico City in October 1847. The implication is that the Whigs waited for the safe conclusion of the war before attacking Polk. In fact, when Lincoln spoke, the two countries were still at war, with Polk seemingly determined to pursue an open-ended conflict. Another myth is that Lincoln's speech was largely ignored. Polk, of course, was not so dumb as to answer a freshman congressman from a minority party in a solidly democratic state. But Greenberg notes that some New England newspapers printed Lincoln's address in full, and that more than a dozen newspapers on the eastern seaboard reported on it. Greenberg quotes the Baltimore Patriot saying, quote, Evidently, there is music in that very tall Mr. Lincoln. The biggest myth is that Lincoln's anti-war stand ruined his political career. It is true Illinois Democrats got hot under the collar about Lincoln's attacks. They seized on Lincoln's use of the word spot and bitterly accused him of betraying the soldiers and the war dead, while insisting the invasion was just. Stephen Douglas, just elected to the U.S. Senate, made reference to Lincoln in his first speech in that chamber on February 1st. He said, quote, It is a war of self-defense, forced upon us by our enemy, and prosecuted on our part in vindication of our honor and the integrity of our territory. He added, in a bit of self-serving logic, Conquest was not the motive for the prosecution of the war. Satisfaction, indemnity, security was the motive. Conquest and territory, the means. Lincoln had used his franking power as a congressman to send out thousands of copies of his speech, further enraging Illinois Democrats. They called him a ranchero, a Mexican guerrilla fighter. The Democrats of Morgan County passed a resolution calling Lincoln, quote, the Benedict Arnold of our district and ranchero spotty, while a Peoria newspaper said, quote, the miserable man of spots will pass unnoticed, save in the excrecation that is treason, Will bring upon his name, William Herndon panicked over the democratic reaction to Lincoln's speech and pleaded with him to tone it down. Lincoln did not like people trying to change his mind. He wrote to Herndon in mid-February quote, "Allow the President to invade a neighboring nation whenever he shall deem it necessary to repel an invasion, and you allow him to do so whenever he may choose to say he deems it necessary for such purpose, and you allow him to make war." at pleasure. One person who felt ruined by Lincoln's stand was his old law partner, Stephen Logan. True to the principle of rotation in office, Lincoln did not seek re-election, and the Whig Convention nominated Logan to run in the 1848 contest. The Democrats nominated Thomas Harris, a veteran of the war. Harris pulled off an unexpected upset turning Lincoln's 1,500-vote majority into a narrow 100-vote win for the Democrats. It was a stunning victory in what had been a safe seat for Lincoln's party. The Illinois State Register, a Democratic newspaper, screamed, quote, The Whig Citadel taken! The dead district redeemed! Logan later told Herndon that Lincoln's unpopularity, as he put it, doomed him. And Herndon would write still later that Lincoln was, quote, Politically dead and a ruined man after the election. But Michael Burlingame, who knows antebellum Illinois politics better than anyone, puts the blame on Logan, a brilliant lawyer but a comically terrible politician. His slovenly dress did not impress audiences, nor did his harsh, grating voice. As Gustav Kerner, a lawyer who was a Democrat at the time, said, quote, He was too frank and unbending to be always popular with either the people or the politicians. Some Whigs told Lincoln they could not support Logan, apparently on personal grounds. And Logan made some terrible gaffes during the race. When the Democrats accused the wealthy attorney of donating only 50 cents to return a soldier's body from Mexico, Logan hotly denied it, saying he'd actually donated $3. And feeling far too confident in his chances, Logan allegedly told voters at one location their ballots were not needed. To be fair, Logan faced other challenges. Democrats printed a handbill in German falsely claiming that Logan had called on his fellow countrymen to, quote, rise in mass and kill every foreigner. The Liberty Party also took votes that probably would have gone to the Whigs. But none of this was Lincoln's fault, and few of Lincoln's colleagues blamed him for the loss. As we'll see, Harris's victory proved an aberration, and the local Whig press stuck with Lincoln. The party named him an assistant elector for the 1848 presidential campaign. Lincoln remained a prominent leader of the party in Illinois as long as there was an Illinois Whig party. Yet, even as they opposed the war, the Whigs promoted their generals. Stephen Douglas accused the Whigs of attacking Polk to boo Zachary Taylor for the presidency, and he was correct. Lincoln himself became one of the general's biggest promoters. To the Taylor committee in early February, he wrote, quote, I am decidedly in favor of General Taylor as the Whig candidate for the next presidency. And said he had, quote, no doubt in my mind that the preference of the Whigs in the state is the same. The Whigs may have opposed the war, but they would use one of its major characters to win back the White House. Next time, we'll talk about Lincoln's campaign for Zachary Taylor and Taylor's own efforts to gain the endorsement of a major party while trying to be nonpartisan, a strategy that would set the Whig Party on a course to extinction.